Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to talk to Dr. Jim Farney about the recent history of the Harper government between 2006 and 2015. In particular, that government's legacy in terms of federalism. Jim Farney is Associate Professor of Political Science and the University of Regina Director of the Johnson Choyama Graduate School of Public Policy. Although he's only been a university professor for a decade, he's written widely on the history and nature of conservative politics in Canada, including his book, Social Conservatism and Party Politics in Canada and the United States, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2012. Today, we are here to talk about his newest book, co-edited with Julie Simmons, entitled Open Federalism Revisited, Regional and Federal Dynamics in the Harper Era. This was published by the University of Toronto Press. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, It's great to be on with you, Greg. First, let me say that this is a history podcast. Now, some are going to question whether the Harper government is too recent to constitute history, uh, but I think it's definitely part of our political history now. At the same time, what I'd like to know is uh, how you, your co-editor, and all of your contributors who are political scientists Uh, can have something to say to those of us who are historians. And would it be fair to say that this is actually a good first draft of the history of federalism under the Harper government? Yeah, you know, I I think this, it's a really interesting question. And I've got to admit, I'm I'm a bit of a heretic as a political scientist. I usually describe myself as a political historian. Um, I've, and so I think there's kind of three things that, that kind of weave or tie together. One is the first draft notion. I think it, it's true that because it's still so recent in time, we can't use many of the, the conventional historian's tools, right? I would love to get into the archives on this and in due course about the time I expect to retire, maybe that'll be possible. But, you know, we're, we're still working with public sources and, and that's just a reality. Um and you know, I think I think historians recognize you know that means you work with different things in the toolkit. There is maybe a question of the analytic framework. So the the kind of founding hook of the book is trying to figure out if Harper moved us between shared rule and self rule, and you know, political scientists do tend to to kind of emphasize that sort of theoretical trade off more than historians do, but we. You know, I, I think it's it's used with a fairly light hand in the book, uh, and there's a there's a number of chapters, and I include my own in this, where that that distinction, which is really of a lot of interest to scholars of federalism, uh, doesn't help guide the narrative that much, and so it's it's put there and spoken to, but the the core concern is still followed in in kind of a narrative way, and I think that's. Um, that, that would be recognizable to historians. 
And then the last piece I'd say, and this is something that I, I, I think the two disciplines need to talk to each other much more about, is, is it is in a sense really a book about the possibilities of change, right? And how change can flow through time and whether it's uh, in the language of political science, um, exogenous or endogenous, you know, what, what makes change in the state or in politics happen and how do we know it when we see it? That's it's really a question about periodization and about evidence, and and I know in, in for myself as I've kind of tried to think through it, you know, historians are very good at it. They they they're careful about this sort of thing in a way that social scientists aren't always. So, yes, it is. I think a, a first draft. Right, we're writing. You know, really, the genesis of this book was a set of conference uh, conference proceedings in the summer of 2015. So we weren't even sure at that point if the if the Harper era was over. Um, and I've got to say, post COVID, I feel like some of the some of the analysis might already be a, a little bit history itself. But no, I, I think what we aimed for was a reasonable first draft. Uh, and I think, um, uh, you know, I, I sometimes think we don't do enough of that in Canada, the Brits have this tradition, they call policy history where it's it's often very contemporary but it's using the tools historians have to to grapple with recent events and and I, I'd like to see us do more of this sort of thing regardless of, of disciplinary home well I recently uh, did essays and two books one on uh, uh, Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent uh, and a second on Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, and and their approaches to federalism, uh, during their times in office. And prime ministers in Canada have always come to office with their own particular approaches to federalism, for sure. With Stephen Harper, as you note, it was so-called open federalism, which, in my opinion, despite the terminology, was really meant to be a return to the classical vision of federalism, where the federal and provincial governments would stick to their own jurisdictions and not interfere with each other. Can you tell us why Harper and his government embraced this, what used to be called in the constitutional law literature, a watertight compartment view of federalism? I think there were there were two big factors behind Harper's embrace of open federalism. One, and I think this is probably more prominent in the literature and, and maybe of more import to Canadian political history is, is the regionalism angle, right? The kind of reform party, the West wants in um, kind of articulation of Western alienation that, that Harper came up out of. By the time Harper gets to 2004 or 2006, and he's he's leader of the United Conservative Party, he's also realized that that many soft nationalists in Quebec uh, want want a kind of watertight version of federalism that lets the Quebec state do as it will, and so it becomes this this powerful way for him to bridge uh, Western alienation with Quebec alienation from from Central Canada. And build a viable electoral coalition. Um, and he he was, I think, keenly aware that Mulroney had done something similar and had found it profoundly unstable. So by moving to kind of an open federalism, soft pedal the Constitution, soft pedal some of the big national debate questions, Harper was seeking something um, that, that worked in terms of his principles, you know, the kind of... Um, 
province first notion he had from reform days and would let him build a, a minimum winning coalition. So I think those that, that regionalism story is a big part of it. The other piece uh, is, is of course, he, 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 he was a free market person and he wants a smaller state in general. And it's it was kind of convenient, I think, for him to be able to say, we're going to have a smaller federal state specifically. And then if potential conservatives in Quebec would like to see government do more and, and potential conservatives in Alberta and Saskatchewan want to see it do less, well, they can sort that out within their own jurisdictions. Uh, and, and you know, one of the, the chapters that, that did find change, uh, one of the policy chapters on the environment, Adam Wellstead's piece, you know, there where there was a, a clear government bent towards light, lightning regulation, Harper stepped in and the federal government did what the federal government sometimes does and kind of pushed change in many other, in most other areas that, that didn't happen. And so I think it's it's kind of uh, regionalism and electoral politics coming together with a, a, a small state vision, a Hayekian vision of the state. And uh, it was a very convenient marriage. I think one of the reasons that open federalism faded uh, as a as a kind of touch point for the government after the 2009 crisis, and, and Harper talks about this in his memoir, was suddenly they were grappling with, with the need for the federal state to do stuff, to borrow heavily, to step into the economy. And I think it made that, that kind of happy coming together that they'd enjoyed in 2006 or 2008 uh, harder to do, um, even at a conceptual level. And, and so, you know, when you're looking at open federalism as a, as a real uh, driving force for the Harper government, you're looking at those kind of first minority mandates. Once they're in a, in a majority situation, they're, they're operating in a different context. Right. So before Harper became the conservative leader and then prime minister, he was one of the authors of the famous or what many would term the infamous firewall letter that was sent to Ralph Klein in 2001. And that letter called upon the Alberta premier to follow Quebec's lead by withdrawing from the Canada pension plan to collect its own income tax, to replace the RCMP with a provincial uh, police force, and to not allow the Canada Health Act to deter Alberta from enacting changes to the way it funds and manages its health care system. In other words, introduce new forms of private funding and differential access. So what was this firewall letter all about? So the way I read it now, although I don't, I don't think we saw it this way at the time, was I see this firewall letter as, as the last salvo in, in the constitutional wars of the 80s and 90s, right? We have the, the Quebec referendum in, in 95. We've got Cretchen's Plan A and Plan B. Um, we've got the Western alienation of the Reform Party. And we've got provincial premiers like, like Klein kind of playing in on that as well. And so by the time you get to 2000 or 2001, on the overall, I would say Cretchen is doing a great job of, of moderating the, the passions around federalism and around the Constitution, right? Largely, you know, this is, this is just before the sponsorship scandal, but largely Quebec's been brought on board. 
Um, the West still feels alienated, and that's part of the the Kretsch and Martin wars that are pulling the the liberals apart. Um, but it's you know the Reform Party's energized; it's transforming into the Canadian Alliance. And so Ralph Ralph Klein, uh, in answer to to things that the federal government's doing, releases this letter, uh, or sorry, is has this letter addressed to him, and it's it's written by five people who are very prominent uh, in the in the conservative movement. What I find kind of fascinating is it's the last really prominent moment I would say in in this period where there's not outreach to other regions, right? So is the is the firewall letter incompatible with open federalism? No, it's a really important marker. But the kind of Alberta first language very rapidly falls away and you can you can see how um, how Harper in particular starts to to shift his language and shift shift to something that's that's more open and a bit um, I think it's a it's a pivot. So it's where Harper personally, although he signs this letter, you know, in 1993 he had been the person who pushed the Reform Party to oppose Charlottetown. And there's a you know this period of about a decade where he's very very provincial rights. The firewall letter comes out in 2001. We get the changes on the right, but he he then starts to shift to this this open federalism language where he's speaking more to Quebec, where the tone becomes much more moderate, uh, where it becomes. You know, it becomes the vision of someone who might be prime minister rather than somebody who's a regional leader, and so it's a really important marker. But I think one of the one of the impetuses of the book, and it, we don't make this as clear perhaps as we ought to have, was I think when Harper won the firewall letter was only seven years old, and so people were expecting him to to act on it. I think with perspective of another 15 years now, we can see that he'd already moved a lot. And so perhaps the shock to Canadian federalism people were, were expecting when he first became prime minister uh, was because we, we put too much emphasis on that letter. We, we overestimated um, its own place in his thinking by that time. Right, right. Now, in your introductory essay, I noted your uh, review of Simeon, Robinson, and Waldner's evolution of Canadian federalism and how they placed it into seven distinct periods. I hadn't really uh, seen that before and kind of questioned the, uh, the way in which it had been done, but can you describe each of these periods in terms of its main characteristics? And let me ask you the larger question of whether you agree with this periodization and the extent to which open federalism fits or does not fit within this schema. Real scholars of federalism, and I'm more a policy and parties guy, um, have a lot of debates about this. But it's, it's, a, it's a very standard kind of textbook periodization in political science of the, of the, of the history of federalism. Um, and the, the, the basic notion is it's an attempt to bring together both the kind of constitutional story or the, the legal story, the evolution of federalism with political economy. So very quickly, the, the colonial federalism is, is the national project, the, the kind of original Sir John A, kind of a, a dominant Ottawa with, with provinces almost as municipalities. And obviously somebody who 
pays a lot of attention to kind of uh, Premier Mowat and, and kind of the Ontario and Quebec governments of the time would say, you know, even in 1867, these were important entities. But that first 1867 to 85 period, you know, there's a sense that we have a national project and a very dominant national government. Uh, the classical federalism period that follows it is driven partly by the, the growth of provinces and a kind of province building mandate by the premiers, but also by a series of JCPC decisions. And that's the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council for our listeners. Everybody's favorite uh, political acronym. And it's, you know, this is, while the provinces have grown, this is before we've invented the welfare state uh, de facto. And uh, you know, a kind of small government vision overall. Um, it's interrupted during uh, the two world wars, World War One and World War Two, by by a massive expansion of the state, uh, driven by the federal government's emergency powers. And so, during the wars, it's it's you know, federalism kind of falls away because it's faced with with such an emergency. I'll admit that the periodization once you get in after the Second World War becomes. A little bit more complex, and the you know quite where to to draw the lines I think becomes harder. But in Simeon and Robertson and Walner's telling, right after the Second World War, we get a period of cooperative federalism. This is a lot of shared cost programming, building the state, um, and so you get the federal government funding what is an ex in, uh, an expansion of programming within provincial jurisdiction, and both levels of government are benefiting from that. Um, and this is this is the period of the Keynesian consensus. Uh, there's a from that last most political scientists would say for about twenty years, starting sometime in in the mid '60s or the late '60s, you get uh, a period of competitive federalism, or people sometimes refer to refer to it as province building, where first Quebec and then other provinces. Um, you know, and it, this is a, a kind of trans-ideological thing. So both Blakeney and Saskatchewan and Lougheed and Alberta start to build the provincial state and have access to, to revenue sources that allow them to be independent of Ottawa. Um, and under fiscal pressure, Ottawa starts to walk back the shared cost programming. So it becomes competition for resources. Um, and it's, you know, it's... it kind of starts to blur into constitutional questions about the place of Quebec, but uh, it, it also has really important questions about taxation and public policy. Um, folks then talk about kind of the, the 80 to 95 period as constitutional federalism being dominated by Meech and Charlottetown and those big high stakes tables. Um, and then the last period, and, and I do think we, we kind of confirm this periodization in, in the volume, People talk about collaborative federalism, and often the the marker is is Martin's nineteen ninety five budget, right? Where is there still constitutional bickering? Yes, uh, but the the Quebec referendum has so scared people that we back away from that brink and take for a long time the meta constitutional questions off the table, uh, and instead it becomes. Uh, kind of federalism by increment, federalism by by interprovincial, federal provincial negotiation, uh, and there are relatively few markers of like kind of really high stakes uh, contest go on. the The question mark in in that periodization is where does Harper fit? 
is he a, a fundamental break with the Krechen era? And so we should have, you know, just a period of, of Krechen and Martin uh, solve by taking off the table the, the deep constitutional questions of the 80s and 90s. And then Harper's a period of open federalism, a dramatic break with, with that practice. Or um, are they fundamentally the same, that you can put uh, the, the practice of federalism of, of Kretchen and Martin and Harper all in the same box? And what we find is, is that you can. Uh, there are some policy differences. There are some differences of, of style. But wherever, however much Harper might have wanted in principle to return to the, the federalism of the 1880s, he didn't. Um, and, and the book tries to wrap, uh, to grapple with the story of, of, of why he didn't get there from a bunch of different perspectives. Um, but yeah, we, we do find in terms of the story of the evolution of federalism, the, the real break is 95, uh, both because of the, the Martin budget, uh, the, the kind of resolution of the Quebec question by, by not resolving it. Uh, that really set a, a, a context within which Harper... Uh, whatever his initial language broadly stayed within. Well, let's uh, go to um, Harper's Montreal's Board of Trade speech of 2006, uh, which you highlight in terms of its significance in describing open federalism. Tell us the major content of that speech and what was intended when that speech was delivered. This is after, um, after he's won, and it's a speech in Quebec. And I think it's, it's really important to recognize that in the kind of two thick, 2006, 2008 period, the, the Tories were really, really saw a future base of support in Quebec. In, in 2011, you get the orange wave, but Quebec is in play politically at this time, right? So we don't, we don't have that move to the left that we, we see a few years later. Um, and the Tories have not figured out how to break into to immigrant communities in the GTA yet. So in terms of an electoral calculation, this is a crucial speech uh, for Harper because he's, he's speaking to a Quebec audience that he knows he very much needs. And I take it as, as kind of a, the, the, this, if you need a, a single example of, of where he was at in his thinking of federalism, by the time he becomes prime minister, it's this speech. So, you know, if, 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 the, if the firewall letter is Harper kind of as far out as he goes in terms of provincial autonomy and regional alienation, the Montreal speech is, is him moving back into to kind of a national vision. And kind of one of the key, uh, the qu key quotes that we reference is, to, is where he says that, that open federalism means benefiting from the experience and expertise of the provinces of territories. It means respecting areas of provincial jurisdiction, limiting the use of the federal spending power, um, and establishing formal mechanisms for provincial input into the development of, of Canadian positions on international negotiations or organizations freeing Quebec from polarization and allowing Quebec to take up its place at UNESCO. So, you know, quite a bit of focus on Quebec, quite a bit of focus on smaller government, uh, but the, the temperature is, is really turned down, right? This is, this is clearly 
clearly the speech of someone who's become prime minister rather than someone leading a, a, a regional party. Right. I, and I know that you conclude after reviewing multiple policies and programs that change was quite incremental, as you describe it, compared to what was intended and certainly compared to what people thought was going to happen, given some of the early rhetoric. However, and you've mentioned this already, it seems to me that in some areas, such as environmental policy, and I remember those days well because I was working on a major climate change project um, in terms of research, and I was doing the historical policy on it, that there were major changes made, uh, shutting down the PFRA, um, the, the ending of funding for research and climate change policy and, and a reversal of, of, I would say, the scientific infrastructure that built up over generations at, at Environment Canada. And a, what I saw is a very substantial retreat by the federal government. Now, you say that's the exception to the rule. But do you think that if the Conservative government had been re-elected in 2015, do you think that things would have changed more uh, in other policy areas, including health care and other files, that clearly Stephen Harper wanted changed and, and saw this through the prism of open federalism? Yeah, the, 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 the Medicare one is interesting. So someone you and I both know well, Tom McIntosh, did that chapter and, and argued for continuity. I think it's I think it's a really interesting open question on, on kind of how that specific one would have played out. Where I think I, I would say very clearly um, Harper did have an effect, but it was a, a road not taken. And and this was a this was an interesting kind of back and forth we had when we were putting the collection together. Um, I think in backing away from some of Martin's reforms, uh, Harper understood federalism as a as as a, an arena where the players were provinces and the federal government, uh, and and so we structured the book in that way, and and in a sense that's a that's a very old-fashioned type of analysis and vision of federalism, right? It's not simply that uh, that Harper saw the relationship between federal, fed, the federal government and provinces as, a, as an open federalism thing, but that he saw those groups as the major players at all. And so if you think back to, to the Kelowna Accords that would have brought First Nations and, and Indigenous governments more into, into the federal-provincial arena in a big way, by, by walking those reforms back, uh, Harper changed the players. And by not pursuing the urban agenda, right, and not bringing cities into, into the story of Canadian federalism, you know, I think, uh, and we, we, we decided not to put chapters on those topics in because it's, it's difficult to write a chapter on, on roads not taken. Right, and I, and I, we wanted to to be careful with that, but but kind of stepping back and, and and answering your question, I think that's maybe one of the big impacts of of the Harper period is is that those two sets of entities um, were kind of understood to be at their own tables rather than part of the of the core federalism table that a, a book like this would would examine. Um, 
in terms of 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 other stuff where we we do have chapters you know i think uh, i was surprised by the employment insurance story that that there was not more change there and i i suppose it's it's possible to imagine a, a harper victory in 2015 uh driving change on on immigration we did find some change halfway through his mandate and especially you know if you think of those the, the waning days of 2015 where they they roll out the the barbaric cultural practices hotline perhaps there was something going on inside the conservative party at that point that would have driven further further change so i don't think there was well, I think we certainly find that there are lots of structural limits on, on on the ability of Harper to achieve the type of change that he wanted. We we also don't find it's impossible, right? That we, we certainly see it in the environment. It's possible to imagine with with more time. Um, and I mean, the, I think the other interesting counterfactual is what would have happened had the 2009 financial crisis not hit. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, that really changed... Uh, change this problem set the government was trying to address. Uh, and if they'd had more runway um, and and during the period when open federalism was was really front and center for them, they were also in a, in a very tentative minority situation, uh, they might have achieved more change. So Medicare, I'm not sure on that's, you know, that's uh, a something you know a lot more about, but but even more is such a, a kind of deeply entrenched thing, things that's difficult to change. But um, no, I think by, by taking some groups and, and taking them out of the federalism uh, arena, uh, and, and as you say, on the environment, you know, we, we do find substantial changes to how we operate. Well, not doing something is also policy. And I certainly agree with you just simply by not doing certain things and by removing players that it fundamentally altered what could have been a trajectory of a pre-existing trajectory of federalism. Now, I think we'd both agree on this. Federalism is a key aspect of Canadian political culture, and, and I've seen this uh, represented in so many different ways when I compare Canada to other federations. It's not just a structure of government. It's really a part of our political culture and our social culture in so many ways. Uh, so what kind of historical research on federalism uh, would you th uh, think and uh, could maybe advise us on that would help uh, us better understand ourselves as Canadians? Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you. You know, I think I think federalism is... is key to our political institutions it's key to our culture in in political science and i suspect in history there's there's often a danger that it gets it, it kind of falls into its own silo because it's so important that it it's just big enough that it has its own group of, of specialists and scholars that work just on federalism and so one thing we tried to fix in this edited volume was we had you know the kind of serious focused on federalism scholars like my co-editor Julie Simmons, uh, people like me who were coming in from the study of parties or the study of mass behavior, uh, folks interested in political culture, folks interested in in things like the Supreme Court. So we we tried to take federalism and say how did it play out across a number of these these political silos. And I think I think that's really important. Um, 
and I think in terms of of to kind of back it up one level more, I I think this this struggle to grapple with federalism and articulate how it matters. I would argue, kind of sitting where we are now, right after COVID, there is a need for really good um, kind of historical as well as as analytic work on what is it that the Canadian state is, um, and I, I think political science hasn't hasn't done a great job of, of capturing how much the state has changed. Um, you know, we, we can talk about cities and, and indigenous government governments. Um, there's an American literature in uh, called that refers to the submerged state that talks about how as governments deliver more programs through, um, through contracts with charities, how that shapes and, and shifts politics in the state. We do a lot of that in Canada, but we haven't really captured it. Uh, and, and for us, you know, shared cost programming and, and granting from provinces and federal governments um, kind of all, all move through it. And if you look at, at any one policy area, you will find, you know, really good scholarship uh, trying to understand that dynamic in healthcare or in employment insurance or in labor market and immigration, but I haven't I haven't seen kind of an all encompassing bringing it that together, and I haven't seen, and this is I think maybe specifically where where historians could be be very helpful, is is how do we fit that into the long durée? You know, how do we get the perspective and know, you know. Where, where, what markers do we put down? Um, so, you know, if 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 our argument holds that 1995 is is kind of the really key turning point, and, and Harper's in a sense just following Martin and Cretchen, well, how different is that in terms of of what the Canadian state understood very broadly? How different is that from from that pre 95 period? And what are the markers? And 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 how can we carefully put that into an overall package? I think I think having a, a really clear historical sense so that we we have the perspective of the change in the periodization and and how it would look I imagine different in, from a Quebec perspective than a Saskatchewan perspective that's something that a that a good historical lens I think would would really help us with in terms of uh, of, of understanding. Um, both the limitations of change and its possibilities. I think if you had asked me in, in 2017, you know, would you have expected the Canadian Canadian governments to to step up and, and roll the set of policy changes out that we've seen in response to COVID-19? I would have said, no, that's largely off the table. I think we've rediscovered what the state can do, uh, and federalism is, is clearly a key part of that. But I think it's it's sometimes difficult to, to capture the historical perspective um, to really have a full awareness of it. Great. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today, Jim. Thank you, Greg. It's, it's great to be part of the podcast, and it's great to see you again. guest today was Jim Farney. He is the co-editor, along with Julie Simmons, of Open Federalism Revisited, Regional and Federal Dynamics in the Harper Era, published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. 
If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Ottawa Press, and the University of Regina Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on August 31st, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.